0: Well, good morning. Thanks, Joel. Appreciate your love. Well, let me add a special uh, welcome to you as well. Um, I feel like we always uh, welcome the new guests and visitors, but I just want to say if you've been coming here for a really long time, I'm glad you're here today, too. So uh, I'm thankful if you're brand new and you've been coming for a few weeks, but. Uh, So, thank you, and I'm glad you're here and glad you're back, but uh, if you've been coming for a while, I'm doubly excited you're here as well. Um, We put a lot of information on your chairs today, uh, partly because we want you to be as informed, as engaged uh, in the community, uh, because there's lots of good things that God's doing that we want you to be part of. John just did a great job of really communicating. This is not just an event we're trying to do, uh, but this is something that God has burdened Our hearts with, and uh, we want to be used of him uh, to bless other people. Uh, And the other card that you should have on your chair is uh, our summer life groups uh, are coming up um, starting in the first week of June. Uh, We do life groups on a trimester system, which means we usually do uh, one trimester is anywhere between 12 to 14 weeks long, Uh, and then we take a, a few weeks off, and then we start a brand new trimester where you can continue with the life group you were in, if that's still going or you can try a new life group. So we've got a few different options for you. I think we have uh, nine or ten different life groups. Uh, really, they're all either on Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, or Thursday. So uh, over the next few weeks, pray and consider what life group uh, you would want to be part of. Uh, some are doing book studies, and some are just walking through uh, sections of, this, uh, of Scripture. This summer, I'm going to be preaching through the book of Proverbs, uh, starting in the month of June. And so there's going to be a handful of uh, life groups going through uh, the book of Proverbs. So uh, please uh, consider, and more than consider, uh, make the step, take the make the decision to get engaged and involved uh, this summer in speaking into other people's lives and allowing other people's lives to speak into yours. Um, Love or die. <laughs> this is the new series that uh, we're starting uh, today, right now, and uh, it's kind of a weird title. I realize. Uh, one thing that we did not want to communicate is that if you do not love, that we will kill you. Um, <laughs> if there was any misconceptions that that's what that was about, rest easy. We will not uh, be you know, committing, uh, you know, one of the Ten Commandments says, do not kill. So we're going to stick with that and not do that. So really the heart behind uh, love or die Um, is that if we don't love as a church, both God and people, we will literally, uh, these doors would be closed. Because if we're not loving, we have to ask the question of what's the point? And so um, why do a series? I'm going to do this over the period of four or five weeks uh, through the month of May. And really the first question I wanted to ask is why? And just so there's no confusion, we're not going to be killing anyone. Uh, And secondly, this is not a series on romantic love. So this is not uh, I date revisited like we did a few years ago. This is not about uh, love in marriage or love in in dating, engagement type of a thing. Uh, This is talking about love at the core of who we are. And because love is at the core of who we are, it shapes and forms uh, who we're becoming and engaging the world around us. So uh, why spend an entire month, why devote an entire series uh, to this topic, subject, Uh, of love called love or die. Uh, Four reasons, and these are not necessarily in order of importance, and it's certainly not exhaustive. But really the first reason that comes to mind is Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he says, a new commandment, I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must, as I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, verse 35, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As John talked, John Bandai talked a few minutes ago about, there's just a lot of people who don't know the God of the Bible and they don't know the church of the Bible. And I think a lot of it, if not most of it, if not all of it, has to do with this one command that is largely ignored. If we would but love one another as Jesus loved us, the promise from Jesus to you, to me, to our church, is that the world would know. The world would recognize us, would recognize our community, as that's a Christian community. That's a a community with people who ultimately are lovers of Jesus because I see the way they love one another. So that's the first reason. Uh, I think, you know, if you've been in the church long enough, and sadly it doesn't take more than a few weeks maybe to even recognize this, but there's just a lot of sin in church. There's just a lot of jealousy. There's a lot of self-centeredness. There's just a lot of criticalness. There's a lot of just bitterness. There's a lot of unforgiveness. And most churches that have that as a characteristic of who they are, they just, they wither and they will die. But I want Genesis, and I hope it would be a shared want, is that we will be the community that loves as Jesus has loved us. Second one, That I would give you says um, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 31, says this this is Paul, and now I will show you the most excellent way. There's many ways as we as a new church can go, there's many things that we can be known for or recognized for. I mean, you just have to mention certain churches' names. Oh, that's the church that's really into social justice. Or that's the church that's, there, that's the fundamentalist group. Or those are the Bible-thumping group. Or those are like the really seeker-sensitive, you know, they're really watered down and really surfacy. That's the type of church they are. So when I consider the way of Genesis, the way that we're called, commanded to go, is Paul says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. And we're called to pursue the most excellent way. And the very next verse in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul then gives an exposition of love. And at the conclusion of it, he says, And now these, the, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest, the greatest of these is love. Greater than faith, greater than hope, foundational to everything we do is love. So there is a way we can go, and the way we will go is the way of love, because it is the most excellent way. It is the foundational way. Third thing, a lot of churches are great at doing. There's a lot of churches that are just really busy. They have a lot of things, a lot of activities, a lot of programs, but there's often a great divide between the doing of ministry and good things and good works and good deeds uh, And what's really behind, what's driving that? And I don't want us to be a church that is great at doing, but we're terrible at loving. There's a big difference. As we're going to look in some of the scripture today, we can do a lot of great things. But if we're void of doing those things in love, it's all for nothing. There's a lot of churches that you can drive by, and just because their doors are open, And just because you see signs that say, come, be part of this and do this and do this and do this is not evidence that in that community, foundational to that community is a community that loves. As I'm saying these things, I hope that you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I want to be part of a church that's like that. I want to be part of a church that we actually love people like Jesus loved us. I want to be part of a church that pursues the better way, the most excellent way. Yeah, I want to be part of a church that just doesn't do a lot of good things, but at the end of the day, we're just doing it out of mechanics almost. That's just what we're supposed to do, and that's what we do. So I hope you're even thinking, yeah, I I want to be part of a community that is so rooted, so founded in love. And then I've already mentioned this one, but a fourth one I'd give you is if we don't do it, we'll die. Jesus will shut this church down. Because if we're not a church that's founded in love it's not a witness at all to who Jesus is. And as we'll look at uh, some scripture specifically uh, about that, Jesus says, I will remove myself from that church. You can still gather as a community, but you will be gathering void of my presence. And wow, that is a scary thing. If we're really just gathering, then we're just nothing more than a, a club. You come here on Sundays, you get entertained maybe for a little bit, maybe challenged for a little bit, but then you just go and you do your thing. I don't want to be that church. I want our church to have the presence of Jesus in our midst in everything that we do. So those are just four reasons why we're doing a series called Love or Die. So now the question that I want us to answer or to ask, no, I want us to answer, I'll ask, you can answer. Is is our church marked by that? I realize some of you have literally been here, maybe just for an hour at best, and maybe some of you have been here for a longer time than that. So as you consider our church, known as Genesis, does Christ-like love permeate our church? Would you characterize our church, this community, as they are phenomenal lovers of God and they are phenomenal lovers of people? I don't mean just like one person or two people or three people that you meet, and you're like, wow, they really, they really love God. I'm talking about our church as a whole. If someone were, you were to invite your friend to come to Genesis, and they're like, tell me about your community. Would you say, well, it, it's cool, it's hip, it's, it's different, it meets in a gym, it, or a reformed, revamped gym, you know, a lot of young people? Or would you describe our church and say, It's phenomenal. People there, they really genuinely love God. And because of that, they genuinely love people. That's why you should come. Not because it's different, not because they're anything, but come because they really genuinely love God and they genuinely love people. Is that how you would describe this church? Your church? I think... How do you know, actually, if we should be characterized by a church that really is marked by love? And again, uh, to be uh, relatively consistent, a few things. Ask someone who's only been here for a few weeks. If you're a guest, I'm not going to invite you to come up here and be like, tell us about ourselves. But they are often a great mirror for who we are. Because those who have been around for longer than maybe six months to a year We can grow so familiar and so comfortable, set in our ways, that we just keep doing our thing. That's what we do. So ask someone who's brand new. Ask someone who's literally been here for maybe less than a month. Did you feel loved? Did you feel served? Did you feel engaged? Did someone come up to you and just even shake your hand, ask you your name, ask you a little bit just about who you are? And did they do that with genuineness? not like they were trying to treat you as someone to get your butt in a seat and then they move on to the next victim, but someone who, like, did, did you feel loved? Like someone cared enough if you came back that they actually remembered your name and be like, oh, great to see you. I remember mentioning last week you said you had this big thing coming up at work. How did that go? So if you're new, sometimes you can be a great mirror for those who've been around for a while. Did you feel loved? I think that's one way that you can ask. If you want to know if our church is marked by love, founded in love, look at your leaders. If you want to know if our church really is founded in love, look at those who are leading, whether it's leading different ministry teams, whether it's leading from worship up here, whether it's leading life groups. Look at the leaders of this church. Are they men or are they women who genuinely love God and love people? Leaders, and if you are here and you are a leader and you know I'm talking to you right now, you have the opportunity to set the spiritual tone of our church. And sometimes leaders get really either busy, really jaded, really critical, grumbling, complaining, frustrated, all of these things. And that's the tone that gets set for our church, ultimately leaders who just want to do their own thing. If we have leaders in our community who look like that, act like that, so goes the church. As with the leadership, so goes the church. So if you want to know if we are a genuinely lovingly, loving community, look at the leadership. Get to know some of the leaders. If someone is in a life group and you're thinking about joining their life group, interview them. Ask them, why would I want to be part of your life group? Well, I, I, I put out cookies and... Um, You know, sometimes every other week I alternate because I don't want to get too crazy. We put out milk with cookies. It's a crazy party. Ask leaders about themselves. And if the leader, you don't smell love for God and love for people, so goes the very thing that they're leading. That's another way. I think a third way, all of us have to look in the mirror. When you look in the mirror, Okay, it's one thing to say, well, our church collectively, you, know, um, you make up our church, just so you know. This is not some just organization, so to speak. It's a community made up of people. So ultimately, if we're going to have a church that really loves God and loves people, it's got to start with us. So as you look in the mirror, do you actually see a man or a woman who genuinely is compelled and controlled by the love of God so much so that they begin to love other people. So when you look in the mirror, and I'm not talking about did your hair look okay, does your outfit look nice, who do you see staring back at you? That is a great test to know if our church would be marked by love. Who do you see when you look in the mirror? I love Apostle Paul. When he met Jesus, he was so radically changed and transformed, he just had such a love for Jesus and a love for people. I love how he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. I love verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we were once regarded, regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Because of Jesus, we look at him differently and we look at people differently. When you look in the mirror, do you see a man or a woman who is controlled and compelled and convinced of the love of God? That's who you see. So much so, when you look away from the mirror and begin looking at other people, you look at them differently. Not with judgmental, critical eyes, but the eyes of Christ as he sees people. That's what what Paul was infusing in the first century church. Compelled, convinced, controlled by the love of God. And the churches by no means were perfect. That's why we have a New Testament filled with letters to these churches. But there was one who was compelled and convinced, controlled by the love of God. I was thinking about this uh, earlier this week. Is if you were to show me someone who is really loving people, I guarantee that is a person who is growing in their love for God. There's a lot of people who actually would say, "Michael, I'm really growing, maturing in my love and my relationship for God. It is phenomenal." Yeah, but I hear the way you talk about people. When you speak about people you're frustrated, you're annoyed, you're bitter, you avoid people, you ignore people, you don't love God. You cannot talk about another person like that and claim in the same breath to be one who loves God. It's inconsistent. So if you wanna see someone who genuinely is compelled, controlled by the love of God, look at how they're currently loving people. You show me a man or a woman who's loving people, I guarantee you their walk with Jesus is growing. But if you show me someone who is ignoring people, bitter towards people, jaded towards people, annoyed, frustrated, that person at best has a very surfacey relationship with God. This is what uh, John says. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Inconsistent to say, I love God, but that person, I just can't stand them. I cannot handle being around them. No, you don't love God then. Because the person who loves God begins to have eyes that God has towards people. I'm like, you know what? They're in a hard spot and I just love them. I'm filled with compassion towards that person. Not rage and bitterness and annoyance and frustration. Back to the original question. Sometimes I confuse myself because I ask so many questions, I'm like, I'm not even sure what I'm answering anymore. So if you ever have that moment, just know I do as well. The question was, is that true of Genesis? Does Genesis really love God and love people? Is our church, our seven-month-old or eight-month-old church, marked by a genuine love for God and love for people. Those are some good ways. We can ask those who are pretty new to the community. We can look at our leadership, and we can also look in the mirror. Uh, But there's one more sniff test, uh, as it were, and it would ultimately be, what does Jesus have to say to us about us? Thankfully, the very last book in the Bible, called Revelation, Jesus wrote seven letters, To seven different churches, and he gave them an evaluation of where they really were. If Jesus, and he is right now, giving us an evaluation of where we really were, what would Jesus say of our church? That foundationally is the most important. Yes, we can ask guests, did they feel love? We can ask our leaders and look at our leaders, and we can look at ourselves in the mirror but sometimes we can just self-deceive ourselves and be like, wow, we're doing pretty good. Jesus is the one who needs to ultimately examine us uh, as a church. So in the book of Revelation, seven letters. We're only looking at one, okay? Just good news there. We're not plowing through all seven, just one. Uh, And it's a, a letter written to a church called Ephesus. And before I read to you just what Jesus had to say to the church about themselves, uh, I wanted to give you some background about Ephesus as a way to help you understand what this new church in Ephesus, where they were planted, where they were established, and how they had to live in this culture known as Ephesus. So Ephesus was in the first century was one of the four most influential, powerful uh, cities in the world of the the time. The other ones were Rome, Alexandria, and Syria, Antioch. So you have those three uh, countries, those three cities, and then you have this place called Ephesus with a population of roughly 250,000 people. Okay, so this was not just a, a small little tent village with like 10 people just trying to love God, love people. This is a church that was planted in one of the most thriving cities in the known world. 250,000 people. It was a very prosperous city, meaning it was very wealthy, it was very rich, because they were planted right on the Aegean Sea. And so to get from Rome to the further east, Ephesus was the place you would stop. It was strategically located. It was a great place for commerce, and much, great, much commerce took place there. Religiously, it was, it was messed up. They had so many different cults and so many different gods and goddesses But there was one in particular, Artemis, in Rome known as Diana. Diana was the god of fertility. I will let you use your imagination for a moment and let you know how you worship a god of fertility, okay? So if you think we live in a sex-craved, pornified culture, this place called Ephesus was the goddess that they worship more than anything was the goddess called Diana. People would give themselves physically, sexually to one another in worship and in honor of this fertility god known, uh, known as Diana. They, they built a, a temple to this goddess known as Diana. In the ancient world, it was known as one of, one of the seventh wonders of the world because it was so large in stature, four times the size of the Pantheon uh, in Athens. Four times the size was this temple to this goddess Diana where thousands of priests and priestesses and the thousands of sacred prostitutes, what they were called, at this temple. It was massive, it was huge. Largest building, I had the specs, what are they? 425 feet long, 225, 220 feet wide, 127 pillars, 60 feet high, all made of marble. 36 of them were laced with gold and jewels. This place was huge. I'll show you a picture in a second. And to top it all off, in phenomenal temple where they, in terms of size and stature, uh, evil temple, but nonetheless big. Uh, and then they had this coliseum that was incomparable. A coliseum that s- sat 50,000 plus people. And this is the coliseum where they would kill Christians. This is the Colosseum where gladiators would fight animals and fight one another. We think some of our stadiums of twenty to 25,000 in our day and age is huge, which it is big, but 2,000 years ago to build a stadium of this size was phenomenal. Here's some pictures, okay? First picture, if you were to travel the sea and uh, arrive at uh, Ephesus, you would be greeted with this. This is about 35 feet wide. Uh, My good friend Jake Snyder was in Ephesus. I sent him on location this week so we could have some good pictures. (laughs) Jake actually traveled to uh, Ephesus uh, a few years back uh, and graciously uh, shared some pictures with me. But as you would come to the city of Ephesus, this is what you would be greeted with. I know it looks a little bit run down now, but back in the day, 2,000 years ago, they would have these huge pillars lined all the way up and the street beautifully paved all the way leading up to the city. The next shot is of just a a different angle of this, Uh, but that road paved with the pillars would lead you all the way up to the city. The next three pictures, and you can just go through these quickly, are shots of the Colosseum. I know it's hard to see uh, in terms of how massive this place is, but the Colosseum was huge. I mean, imagine building something like that. In actually, it was built before the first century, but it was just huge. And the beauty of what even Jake was telling me about this specific Colosseum is, it overlooked uh, the Aegean Sea. So, talk about prime real estate. This Colosseum, this stadium, would, as you were sitting in the stadium, what you would be overlooking out onto is a beautiful picture uh, of the sea. Here are some pictures of the temple. And again, might be hard to picture, I guess, the size of this, but if you've ever seen a picture of the Pantheon, uh, four times the size uh, is this temple that was built for this um, goddess as Diana. So why did I take the time to explain all of this with Ephesus? The context that this church was planted and established in was a context and a culture where people ultimately rejected God and they accepted all sorts of gods, where they rejected the idea of things like sin because it was a free-for-all. One commentator said this, Ephesus was a hotbed of every kind of cult and superstition. Now, I know it's hard for us in our context here in New England, in the Boston area, to picture such a place where no one really was interested in God, Uh, where money prevailed, where sex prevailed. There was great indifference to certainly God, but even to one another because it was a culture so built around self and self-centeredness. I know we can't relate here in New England, not at all. That's where this church, Ephesus, was planted and established. So imagine in that context, trying to love God and, and Jesus, make a big deal about Jesus, and love people. It's pretty difficult to do. I took that 10 minutes to explain because this is our context. 2,000 years removed, we, Genesis, have been planted in a community and in a culture that ultimately rejects God, denies God, and is more concerned about self-hedonism than self-sacrifice. This is what Jesus had to say to this church to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Angel is the same word for messenger. So it would be to the messenger who's giving this. It might've been the elder or the pastor of that church is who this is addressed to. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I love this picture of the one who is unseen sees all. This picture of Jesus walking in the midst of this community, unseen to them, but he sees everything that they do. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. That is awesome. That's what Jesus says to this church. He says seven things. He commends them, meaning you're doing a good job. They're doing good deeds, meaning helpful, beneficial. They are working very hard. They are persevering amidst persecution. They are not tolerating sin in their community. They are doctrinally sound and can spot a false teacher, meaning they're aware that there are wolves among them And they know the Bible. They know the scripture. So when someone comes in the name of God, they can recognize if he's a wolf. They endure hardship all for the sake of the gospel. Despite their culture and context, they don't quit. They don't give up. They're not tapping out saying, this is just too dang tough. I didn't sign up for this. This is a church that's enduring hardship for the sake of the gospel. And then he says, despite all of this, you're not growing weary, you're not burning out, you're not growing tired. If I were to meet someone and I invited them, hey, come check out Genesis. Tell me about your church. And I would give them that list of seven different things. I would want to come. I would want to be there. Wow, a church that's doing all, they're they're doing good things, They're working so hard, they're faithful, they're persevering, they know the Bible, they're fighting for the Bible, they they don't put up with sin. I would love to be part of a community like that. I mean, can you imagine inviting someone to come here and say, this is our community, all this list of things that we're doing. So from the distance, from an outside perspective, and even from an inside perspective, it looks like things are going well. But then Jesus introduces the big but. You're doing these things well, but, and then we introduce Revelation chapter two, verse four, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Despite doing so much good, despite so much benefit of this community, despite the good fight you're fighting and the perseverance and the enduring hardship, Jesus says, I hold this against you. You have forgotten, you have forsaken, you have neglected. That's what that word means. You have walked away from your first love. It would be easy to get pretty ticked at Jesus. Come on, Jesus, cut us. Look at where we are. Like we're doing all these good things. What possibly could you want from us? Where the church would get frustrated, cut us some slack, throw us a bone, Jesus, lighten up. We're doing the best job that we possibly can. Jesus says to them, yet I hold this against you. You have forgotten, you have forsaken your first love. I think what happened to them happens to a lot of us. We can be doing a lot of good things. And this is ultimately the question that gets raised is, is it really possible as a church to do a lot of good things in God's name to help people, to benefit people, to be doctrinally sound, to preach the scriptures, to make much of Jesus, but Jesus ultimately still has a problem with this church? Jesus says, yes, it is possible to do all of the right things and all of the good things, but miss the most important thing. D.A. Carson wrote an article in the late 70s. Uh, He was a professor uh, at a seminary I went to, and he said this. Um, The article was entitled, "A A Church That Does All the Right Things But. They still proclaim the truth, but no longer passionately love him who is the truth. They still perform good deeds, but no longer out of love, brotherhood, or compassion, They preserve the truth and witness courageously, but forget that love is the great witness to truth. It is not so much that their genuine virtues have squeezed love out, but that no amount of good works and wisdom and discernment in matters of church discipline, patient endurance and hardship, hatred of sin or disciplined doctrine can ever make up for lovelessness. That word really just stuck with me uh, this week is lovelessness. If we as a church were ever got to the point where we lovelessness, we would die. Point being, good works, what Jesus is saying is never a substitute for a loving relationship with God and with people. If you haven't thought of the question yet, You will now. What is your first love? If Jesus says, I hold this against you, you've forsaken, forgotten, neglected, ignored your first love, what is the first love that we are ultimately supposed to have in our lives? Jesus answers that question really in Mark chapter 12 when he sums up what we have known as the great commandment. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear O Israel, love the Lord our God, the Lord is or the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this: love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Our first love is to love God more than anything else, and then flowing from that is to love our neighbor. And I love how Jesus says, "Love your neighbor like you love yourself." A lot of us know what it looks like to love ourselves because we're consumed with ourselves. Can you imagine loving someone else the way you love yourself, meaning you're thinking about them just as much as you think about yourself? You're concerned about them just as much as you're concerned about yourself. The first love we are called to have is to love God with absolutely everything that we have, and as an overflow from that, to love people, uh, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So if that's the Bible's commandment to love God and to love people as our first love, who's your first love? Who do you love or what do you love more than anything else? It would be a tragedy for our church to keep going on its way and become loveless. It would be a tragedy for anyone to leave here today and say, you know what, I'm still going to settle for loving this or that. And, and settle for the second, third, fourth, fifth place loves in our life. If our first love is supposed to be loving God and then with everything we have, and then loving people as an overflow, who is your first love? In trying to think about how I'm determining first love, or how do I actually figure out my first love in my life, I think the obvious question is to, well, where do you spend your time and What consumes your thoughts and what do you give your money to? What do you give your resources to? What ultimately do you give yourself to? I think all of those questions are helpful and good indicators of your first love. But what the thing that kept coming back to me, at least in thinking about, how do I really identify my first love? The thing I couldn't escape was, what really breaks my heart? What are the things that I really find myself broken over? not just frustrated with at a surface level, but what really just, what breaks my heart. I read in the Psalms, a guy named David, whose heart was just broken, whether it be over sin, whether his heart was just broken over not knowing God enough. I see a man named Paul in the New Testament, whose heart was just broken over people not knowing God and him wanting to love God even more. For me, and this might not resonate completely with you, but I ask you to at least consider it, is what is breaking you? And I do believe that will be a great indicator, ultimately, of what you love most, is what breaks your heart. And you know that when your heart begins to break for the things that breaks God's heart, your first love is intact. When your heart begins to break over people who just reject God, walk away from God, refuse God, ignore God and your heart just breaks for them. Not in judgment of how ignorant they are, but your heart weeps for them. I'm going to talk about this a few weeks from now, but the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 says, I would rather be cut off from God. I would rather go to hell so that my brothers can come to the saving knowledge of knowing Jesus. His heart was so broken for his brothers and sisters I would rather endure hell for eternity just so that they would not have to. I feel very sincerely that the things that break my heart are a good, if not the best indicator of where my first love really is. So I ask again, what is your first love? And how we answer that collect, uh, individually will help us understand what is our first love as a church? I like that uh, Jesus did not just end with, good luck, I hope you guys figure it out. I, uh, I wish you well. I got to go visit some other churches and give them the good news there. I love that Jesus just said, but the game's not over. There's time to change. There's time to change. And so he says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That imagery of removing the lampstand from its place is imagery of, I will remove myself from your midst. Jesus says, do three things. Remember, repent, and then do what you did at first. I think one of the things that's been most helpful in my walk with God and growing in my walk with God is remembering God, having memory of God. I think a lot of Christians are very forgetful. And what Jesus says, you've forsaken your first love. If that's you, then just remember Pause for a moment and just remember. And so a question I wanted to ask is, one year ago, today's May 2nd, last May 2nd, 2009, where were you in relation to God? Not what was your situation and circumstance, not like what, what was going on in your life, but where were you in relationship to God? What was some of the things that God was teaching you Showing you, revealing to you. What were some of the things a year ago today, May 2nd, 2009, that you remember that God was doing? I'm guessing a lot of us are trying to think, huh, I can't remember what last week looked like. Um, Nonetheless, a year ago, Do you remember or have you forgotten? And I would say, as I've already said, those who remember, I would venture to bet, are growing with God and knowing God better today because of their memory of God. I know this is not completely like, wow, I've never thought of that before. But your memory of God will impact your future relationship with God. I think one of the greatest enemies to growth in our relationship with Jesus is our inability to remember. So, if you look back a year ago, do you remember how God was providing for you? Do you remember His grace to you one year ago? Do you remember His encouragement, His discipline, His comfort, His leading, His correction, His revelation, His presence? Do you remember any of those things that God was doing or showing to you? I'm not at all suggesting that we are called to live backwards, just looking backwards, so to speak. But do you remember any of those things? Because if you don't, you will live in the future as if God, you don't know God and you don't know what God's going to do. But if you remember, I remember his grace. When you sinned and you remember how gracious God was, when you were stressed beyond belief of you didn't know which way to go, left or right, And God clearly said, this is the way I want you to go walk in it. If I don't remember any of those things, I will live moving forward with God, acting as if God ultimately doesn't exist. I think it's very instructive that the first thing that Jesus tells us to do is to remember. This building lately has been getting a lot of hits, meaning... Uh, there's a lot of people who are interested in taking this facility. I probably get not a phone call a week, but pretty darn close of, Mike, we need you to show the building to this client or this customer. And I can honestly say that when this was happening a lot in the fall, I was just freaking out a lot. It's like, oh my gosh, we just got in here. Like, can we just have it for like a week? And I was just so worried and so anxious but I can honestly say with every phone call that now is coming, I remember how God provided for a church. And I'm fully confident If that someone came in and said, you guys got 30 days to get out, relocate. Would that be hard? Absolutely, that would be hard. But because I remember how God provided for all of us, I will trust that he will do the exact same thing. Why? Because God is consistent. He doesn't change if I would just remember what God has done, what God did in my life a year ago, six months ago, three months ago, my relationship with God would dramatically begin to mature and to change and to grow. Why? Because I have history with God. He's been gracious. He's provided. He's led. He's been faithful. He's been God. Jesus says for us to remember. I'm not going to read the whole story, but I'll make mention of the prodigal son, a guy who lived with his father and had everything that his father would provide for him, a loving home. But he said, I want to do my own thing. I'm going my own way. And he made a mess of his life. And you know what brought him back? It says when he finally came to his senses, you know what happened? He remembered his father. And his memory of his father drove him to go back home. Jesus says the first thing that we need to do is to remember. The second thing Jesus says for us to do is to repent. I hope you know that what repentance in many ways simply means is first just admitting that we are in sin. So when Jesus says, you have lovelessness, you've forsaken, forgotten, neglected your first love, to repent of that is to admit to Jesus, you're right. Your assessment of me, of my heart, of my life is spot on. Not try to fight and be like, no, you just don't know me, Jesus. You don't see me, Jesus. If you really knew my heart, you would know how much I love you in my heart. Repentance begins with acknowledging and admitting, Jesus, you are right. If I don't admit that Jesus is right, I will still keep living trying to prove him wrong. Second aspect of repentance is just literally a radical redirection in your life. If you were living and walking and going this way, you stop what you're doing. And I think that's what most people do is they just stop. That's not repentance. That's just stopping. That's stopping certain behaviors, attitudes, actions. Repentance says, I was walking this way. I have stopped. I have turned. I have radically redirected my life and I'm moving this way. That's repentance. There's no such thing as partial repentance. Stopping certain sins or behaviors does not count. Repentance is acknowledging, admitting that Jesus is right, you're not, and it's a radical redirection of going in life now this way. Number three, Jesus says, do what you did at first. If you're married, and I know not everyone in here is married, so to the handful of you who are married, Would your marriage today look any different if you and your spouse did the very things you did at first? If you did daily the things that brought you together? Like, would your marriage look any different now if you, as a wife and you, as a husband, just repeated the things that you used to do? The things that, remember those notes you used to write? Like, when I was dating Kyla, we didn't have email. I would actually have to. I know it's crazy. I'd have to pick up a pen and a piece of paper and write out a thought or a feeling and send it to her. I know. Praise God for how we've evolved. (laughs) Point being, like, would your marriage look any different if you just did some of those things that you used to do? Imagine if you did all of those things. Would there be more joy in your relationship? Would there be more passion? Would there be more connection in your relationship if you just did it at first? Well, Michael, our life situation has changed. We have kids now, and we have a house, and I have to work, and I have to... No, your situation may have changed, but the problem is, so did you. You've maybe not stopped loving her or loving him, but you just don't love them like you used to. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's not that they had just stopped loving God altogether. It's that they just didn't love him like they used to love him. Good works, good deeds began to crowd out a heart that used to have a love affair with God. Remember, go back to some of you, maybe just made a decision to become a Christian weeks, months, maybe years ago go back and remember, what were some of those things that when you first became a Christian, when you realized, oh my gosh, God loves me, he saved me, he's provided for me, he forgives me. Like when you first realized and you really started walking with Jesus, what were some of the things that you used to do in the very beginning? Do you remember when you used to read your Bible, not because you had to and you're like, oh, I gotta have a quiet time, what, what is this? where you just went to your Bible and you didn't even know what a quiet time was? and You just picked up your Bible and you're like, I get to read this. You studied it. You memorized it. You journaled about it. You thought about it. You couldn't get enough of it. Do you remember when you used to serve in the very beginning and you're like, I get to do this? I get to come alongside people? I get to go work and hang out with little kids? Whatever your service may have been, Do you remember when you were first a Christian and you used to give money? I know this might be not true for everyone, but for some, wow, I get to give to support the work of the church and the ministry? That's amazing. And there was such joy. Do you remember when you used to pray and you're like, wow, an hour just went by and I didn't even know an hour went by. And you, you treated prayer as the greatest gift. I get to actually talk with God, and God talks with me. That's phenomenal. And now you think to yourself, man, five minutes? Seriously, I have to pray for five minutes? I got to read my Bible for, what, 10 minutes? The things that we used to do at first, are those things in your life treated as, oh my goodness, I can't believe I have to do that. I can't find time to read my Bible. You want me to pray? You want me to serve? You want me to give? Do you remember when you first became a Christian and the whole thought of hanging out with other Christians in what we call life groups or small groups or Bible studies? You were like, you mean once a week, I can get together with some other people and talk about God? That's phenomenal. I don't get to do that anywhere else, but I get to do that here. And now the thought is, another life group trimester coming up. I don't have time for this. I'm too stinking tired. I ran out of cookies. I don't, I just, I can't handle this anymore. Jesus says, remember, repent, and do the things that you once did. This is not do more, because they were already doing good things. What he's bringing them back to is just remember, repent, repent. And do those things when you first fell in love with Jesus because you knew Jesus loved you. Do those things. Don't stop doing those things. Just think, would your relationship with God look different? Would it be in a different place, more maturing, more growth, if you were just to go back and repeat those things? Not your sins, but repeat the, the things that you did because you just had this love. I love scripture. I love praying. I love giving. I love serving. Why? Because God has planted deep within me such a passionate love that that's how it shows up. Who is your first love? Jesus told the church in Ephesus, and I believe he would tell us as a church as well. You can be doing a lot of good things. You can get busy with a lot of activity, all of which can even be done in God's name. But if you've forsaken your first love, that this is about Jesus, not you. That this is about loving people, not loving yourself if we've forgotten, forsaken, moved away from that. Jesus says, remember and repent and just do the things you once did. I'm thankful that I've been in many different seasons of a walk with Jesus, and there's been many times where Jesus has said, Michael, you're just doing this, you're becoming mechanical. Where's the love that you had for me? Have you forgotten the love that I have for you? This is just becoming routine. Michael, this is not about doing mechanical things and doing things just out of routine. This is about loving me and loving people. Don't forget that, Michael. Genesis, don't forget that this is what it's about. It's not about just doing great things and good things. It's about loving Jesus and loving people. I'm thankful that our purpose, we understand why we exist as a church, is that simple reason. To love Jesus and to love people. So when you invite people to come to church with you, what are you guys all about? They're lovers of God and lovers of people. Father God, I just pray that... um, I trust that you have been speaking, God, in a way that uh, might even be different for each person here. God, for those who are really in a place where they have not forsaken or forgotten you as their first love, God, my prayer for them is that they would continue to press into loving you and loving others. God, give them strength and courage and grace that they will need, to stay the course, to love you and to love others. And God, if there is any one of us that is here today that is hearing that voice in our heart and head saying, that's you, you've forsaken, forgotten, neglected your first love. God, I pray that there would be great remembrance of who you are and of the things that you have done remembering your love, your provision, your faithfulness, your goodness, your kindness, your compassion, your leadership in our life. God, let there be great memory of you awakening in people's hearts and minds now. God, let there be a great decision that we would make to repent, that we would admit and agree with you, Jesus, that your assessment of lovelessness in our life is accurate, and we would repent and have a radical redirection in our relationship with you. And God, I pray that you would bring us backwards to do the things that we once did when we first met you, so that going forward, our relationship with you would be so fused with your love and a love for people. And God, if there's anyone here today that does not know of your great love, I pray that their heart would be so wide open to receive you, Jesus Christ, the demonstration of God's love for us. As you guys are ready, we will worship. I would encourage you just to take some time to pray, reflect, but respond to God. And when you're ready to come and celebrate communion, remembering that Jesus loves you, Jesus forgives you, to take a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or juice, giving thanks to God for what he's done for you, that our sins can be forgiven and we can have eternal life with God forever.